Welcome to Doing Your Business with Matt Hartman, a podcast where I talk with people who run profitable businesses. This is part two of my two-part interview with Steve Graff of Banshee Wines. If you haven't listened to part one, definitely go back and check that out. Lots to cover in this episode. Steve talks about how he got early distributors, wine production, his margins, financing the company, and about the economics of the wine club. As always, if you have thoughts, analysis, or comments on this episode, please leave me a voicemail at 646-779-1234. It goes right to voicemail. You can also text me at that number. Let's listen. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like at the beginning to sell, to convince a wine shop to have First Banshee, and then over time, how that changed? Now you're distributing a number of wines to them. I imagine the value proposition to them has changed over time. Yeah. So, like many things in, in life and business, uh, relationships are huge. So, our first customer for Banshee Wines was a friend who ran a, a wine program at a large and well-respected restaurant in the Bay Area, and he started pouring Banshee Pinot Noir by the glass. That was a pretty easy sell because we had the relationship. But as we went out and sold those initial couple hundred cases, after people tasted the wine and, and realized that the wine was, was great, once they felt the bottle, we used a little bit of a heavier bottle. We didn't put a foil on the capsule on the top of the wine, so there's no tin foil on the top. So it kind of sets itself apart from a lot of other wines on the shelf that way. We had a, a branded cork with our Banshee logo on it. Um, our label looked kind of expensive looking and nice paper. So I think after people tasted the wine and then they saw the package, they were like, we can sell a shit ton of this. When you went in to sell them, were you differentiating at all on the margin that they kept? Or was it all about, put this on the shelf and let's see if people buy it? Um, <clears throat> what do you mean by... So I'll tell you what I envisioned. Yeah. You walk into the Brooklyn Wine Exchange... Mm-hmm. Down, down in in, uh, in Cobble Hill, near where I am, and you're you show them Banshee, mm-hmm. and you say this is priced at twenty seven dollars. I can imagine one of two pitches that you give them. One is buy a case of this and see if it sells, mm-hmm. and you get the same margins you would get. You know, you're you're maybe they they're keeping fifty percent of it or some some piece of that, or you say I know all these other wines you're getting fifty percent. We're going to give you 60%. So that certainly happens happens on a number of different levels. But initially, it, didn't, it wasn't so much about that. Initially, it was you'll make the normal margin that you'll expect to make on this wine. Fairly standard what, what wine shops will mark up uh, to sell their wine. It's kind of an industry standard. It's one and a half times of the wholesale usually. Certainly, once we got going and, and bigger... We offer incentives to our wholesalers, and we hope that those incentives in buying large quantities from us are is something that they can pass on to their customer, the, the end retailer, and they do. So once we got bigger, we were able to, to play with volume discounts more, basically. So you know, there's a large retailer in California that I have a personal relationship with, and he gets a really great price because he buys a lot of wine from us. And so that incentivizes him to do that. There's different regulations in different states. So New York is kind of tough. New York, everyone has to get the same price and it's price posted. 
So you can't even, whatever's published for that price, uh, you have to offer to everybody. You as the end retailer or you as the wine wholesaler? As the wholesaler. can see exactly what your pricing is in the whole state of New York. So it's a very controlled state. So every state's a little bit different. How much wine are we talking about? How much wine do you sell? So Banshee is now about 40,000 cases. Rickshaw, which is... Rickshaw is different from Banshee in the sense that Rickshaw is kind of what, what Banshee was at the beginning when we were buying excess wine from people for discount. Rickshaw is, is completely kind of negotiant, we call it, which is we go out, we find Pinot Noir from Sonoma, we find Pinot Noir from Monterey, we find Pinot Noir from Central Coast, California, already made either in barrel or tank, and we blend together and we make, we put that in a bottle, and that's called negociant winemaking. Brickshaw is about price point, you know, $14.99 on the shelf, volume, not as much kind of about winemaking and, and boutique kind of imagery that Banshee is. So anyway, Rickshaw, we sell also probably about 40,000 cases. And then with Valkyrie, we're importing and selling upwards of 80,000 cases. What do you consider the main driver within within that set of businesses? Because I also know you have the tasting room. A lot of people ask that. I, originally, Banshee was the driver. That was our strongest brand. It was what people wanted the most. The Banshee Pinot Noir really built everything for us. It's responsible for everything else that we do because that was the that's the play. Now the greatest upside is probably on Valkyrie because we worked with thirty different wineries from France and Spain, and we could add thirty more if we wanted. The growth potential is unlimited, you know, as long as you can service it. But there's you know every winery probably has one to four wines that we import, so there's hundreds of SKUs uh, that we're actually individually importing and selling. And if you can grow one of them to you know twenty thousand, thirty thousand cases, the volume potential is is big. Was it different thinking about that with that sort of excess inventory than as you're doing it now? Yeah, so maybe I should also kind of say how we've evolved since then because now. We're making a lot of, we make the Banshee wines from grapes, and there's a whole, that's a whole other cost structure. But basically, we were able to transition because um, the, our original model enabled us to take advantage of the fact that the market was weak. And as the market started coming back, we were also selling more wine, so we were generating more revenue. We are also diversifying our product line. We came out with Chardonnay. Uh, we came out with Cabernet. We came out with Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Rosé. So uh, we were able to build revenues so that, sh- that we were able to invest in consulting winemakers. We were getting grape contracts. We were kind of hedging our bets a little bit because we knew that because the market was coming back, it was harder to find great value wine already made because uh, people could actually sell it again. So we decided, let's make some wine, you know. And to do that, you either have to buy a vineyard, which is super expensive and labor-intensive, which we didn't want to do. So we decided to buy grapes. And there's a number of uh, what they call custom-crushed facilities, which is basically like a shared winery. It's kind of like a cooperative space where you can lease space in a winery and make your wine there so you don't even have to build your own winery. 
So we kind of switched to that model, and that's what we do today. We actually make wine now at three different wineries. We don't own any vineyards. We have contracts with over 20 different growers uh, throughout Sonoma County. Um, and usually those contracts are medium term, like five to eight year contracts with options to renew after. So a lot of people ask about how we keep consistency every year, and, and we do that by kind of locking things in that work for us. That's certainly, you know, uh, a different cost model from um, when you're just buying someone else's wine at a discount, right? As it's evolved, has the distribution stayed the same? I mean, it's grown clearly. Um, but sort of the model, I, I, it sounds like you sort of divided the, the back end of it where you're, where you're creating the wine and that's evolved materially. Mm-hmm. On the distribution side, has that changed or has it just grown or how, how do you think about that? Yeah. We also, I think, did a, a reverse distribution plan than a lot of people who have wineries. A lot of wineries start with the land and the winery and then they sell direct to consumer their wine club or whatever and then they slowly start to try and sell out of state like slowly set up distributors in other states we did the opposite we already kind of knew how to sell wine into any state almost so we started on the broad distribution level and then eventually we actually opened a tasting room in Healdsburg and that was two years two and a half years ago and now we make high-end Pinot Noir that we sell almost exclusively through the tasting room direct-to-consumer or through our wine club. So we've diversified our distribution model in the high-end and in the direct-to-consumer where the margins are the highest. And it's never going to be, percentage-wise, a massive piece of our business because we're such a strong wholesale distribution company. But the bigger bigger we can grow that, that... little chunk of direct-to-consumer, the margins are really attractive. So that's why we have invested more in higher-end vineyards, more winemaking, to be able to make these premium wines that we can sell through the tasting room in the wine club. And the wine club, is that sort of a subscription service? Every month you get three different bottles? It's a a quarterly um, club, and there's two levels of the club. There's like kind of an every day drinking club like you kind of you're like 18 to 25 dollar price point and then there's like a more collector's club so smaller production higher end pinots for people who want to maybe create a cellar or lay them down for a while and then we give people option flexibility within those quarterly shipments as far as numbers of bottles so they can do three six or twelve does the shipping cost eat into that? Is that a significant piece, or at the higher levels, is it not material? Shipping, anytime you move wine, it's really expensive because it's heavy. Um, so that's unfortunately uh, a limitation of of the business. Um, it makes more sense to ship more expensive wine. So really, you know, for wines that are sub fifteen dollar retail, it doesn't make a ton of sense to ship. I don't think. And how did you finance the company? So initially, uh, it was personal money for the for the very first round. You know, we scraped together some personal savings, some money that our parents lent us, and um, it's just on our own. And then once we sold out of the initial couple hundred cases, 
uh, we had a lot of interest from some friends who were already in venture uh, capital, but they just invested in us as uh, angel. So we basically had kind of two rounds of angel investment. And then we actually, later down the road, maybe two years ago or three years ago, found a insurance company that has a little investment kind of side to their portfolio. And they lent us uh, some money and then also kind of invested in equity as well. So now we've got our angels, we've got that insurance company. And when you say they lent you money, was it literally it's a loan with some interest? and? Yep. Yeah, regular debt. Did they approach you or did you approach them? We approached them. We had a, One of our angel investors had a relationship there already and thought it was a unique opportunity. We were almost too small for them. They, we were probably their smallest investment they ever made. Why do you think they invested in you or in a wine brand or a wine distributor? Mm-hmm. I think that when anyone takes a look at our business and our books, I think they see that we're a pretty different wine company from a lot of companies out there. You're either an importer or you're a winery. Rarely are you all, rarely do you do everything and kind of on the scale that we do and in the time that we've done it. So we're, I think, pretty unique that way. I think some of it is people find wine really enchanting and romantic and fun. And uh, it's kind of, kind of, in a way, wants to be involved somehow. <laughs> uh, certainly how we got into the business. You know, it just kind of charms you. So there's a, there's a level of, of romanticism involved. I totally, totally agree. If someone plucked you out and put you into Yellowtail or into some brand that was kind of something that I view as sort of just a mass market yeah. brand, could you make it into Banshee? Like, could you create a brand that people loved around that? I think a lot of people are doing some really smart thinking in the, in the wine business. And I don't think we're necessarily completely unique in that. I think that you certainly have to be smart about it, but you also kind of have to get a certain amount of luck. I mean, the whole way that Banshee kind of came together, like with the label and the image, was was not like thoroughly planned. It kind of like just worked. And there was a certain magic in that that is hard to reproduce every time. And, um, you know, we have certain brands that we've created in the Valkyrie side that some have like taken off, others are fine. So you kind of just keep trying. To turn around something like Yellowtail is, you know, probably something left to more savvy marketing people than us, but that's already been such an established brand, it'd be tough to reinvent that without starting over. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Matt. That concludes our interview with Steve. I'll be back next week with a brand new interview and also my first episode debrief. If you've made it this far, first of all, thank you. The most helpful thing you can do is to tell your friends about this podcast so I can keep it going. Tell them in person, go on their phones and download it for them, post it to Facebook, tweet about it, anything, really. On Twitter, I'm Matt Hartman, and the podcast is at DYB Podcast. 
As always, you can leave me a voicemail with comments and analysis on this episode by calling 646-779-1234. If you leave me a message, I'll include it in the debrief episode. Thanks so much for listening. Talk soon.